When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. He is the last of the witch diggers, they said. Susan was telling a passing farmer how strange women with long faces and arms glided up to the shanty and peered through the windows. How monkeys with human heads entered the door and upset the tables and chairs. He is the last of the witch diggers, they said. Welcome to Strange Familiars Podcast. We cover a range of topics from the paranormal to cryptids to the occult to mythology and folklore. Some of our shows will be presented over multiple episodes, while others will be one-shot features. We do our best to put out new shows every other week. I'm Timothy Renner. And I'm Anthony Hoskin. Please make sure to like and subscribe to us wherever you are listening. YouTube, iTunes, Stitcher, or via any other service you use to get your podcasts. If you could give us a like, a comment, uh, share us around on social media, that all helps get us seen. Yeah, we're trying to get in front of more people, so spread the word if you can. And if you have an idea for any strange stories you would like us to cover, or if you've experienced something strange yourself, please contact us by email at strangefamiliarspodcast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash strangefamiliars. And if you like what we're doing, please consider becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. 
We have lots of different subscriber levels for things like buttons, vinyl stickers, t-shirts, signed copies of our book, you name it. But even at $3 a month, you can get bonus content. We're doing uh, patron-only episodes. We've released one so far. We're working on the second right now. You can get all the previously released patron episodes and anything new we do as well. Uh, that's patreon.com forward slash strange familiars. Every little bit helps, and we thank the patrons who have already signed up. The more patrons we have, the more content we can make, both in terms of the regular show and the bonus episodes. So thanks again to the patrons, and stay tuned for more. So, the Witch Diggers. I have to say, um... That's the coolest name for any episode, I think. Yeah, Sharon, just people knowing nothing about the episode, just kind of telling people it was coming up. Like the, uh, the Where Does the Road Go crew, I was yeah. talking to them about it. They were very excited on Name Alone. Like, oh, I can't wait for that one. Yeah. Uh, of course, Joshua knows what it's about, but uh, the, the rest of the, of the crew was kind of like, you know, just on Name Alone, I could tell they were excited to hear it. And it was very cool talking with Joshua, by the way. That was a very great segment that we did that you'll hear coming up here. Yeah, I think Joshua knocked it out of the park. Certainly. As per usual. I stumbled on this story when I was doing research for my upcoming book, which is called Bigfoot in Pennsylvania. This story was in a Pennsylvania paper, but it didn't take place in Pennsylvania. It's in Indiana. So I wasn't going to use it in the book, but it was really interesting. I just saw it, and I was like, wow, this is a really interesting story. And in fact, this may become part of, if not a whole other book, by the time I'm done digging into it. Super interesting. Lots of stuff going on. The Witch Diggers, a story of their strange monomania. Old Nick still lives, one of the ill-fated Bishlers at large. Delusions drove them mad. Frank Rose, a farmer boy residing in the southeastern part of Jennings County, Indiana, visited a rosy-cheeked neighbor last Sunday evening. It was nearly midnight when he started on his return over stony hills and hollows. Though he was a bold youth, he became silent as he approached the lonely valley known as Rocky Ravine. When halfway through the tortuous cleft between the hills, a slight sound attracted his attention. On his right, near the top of the hillside, a curious figure was seen creeping from rock to rock and keeping well in the shadows. It carried something which gleamed brightly now and then as the moon's rays fell upon it. It came nearer and nearer the farmer, who had crouched down behind a clump of blackberry bushes, with a strange feeling of dread within him. The mysterious being, animal or man, approached until it reached the roadway within ten feet of the boy, when with a bound it sprang up to the top of a huge boulder, where it crouched for a moment in the full glare of the moon. Frank Rose gave one look back and then shut his eyes with a gasp of horror. The thing upon the rock was a man. But what a man! When Frank got home that night, he told a wonderful story of a vision he had seen upon the way of a creature which, though it walked on all fours, and was covered with hair from head to foot, carried a gleaming axe and displayed other indications of being human. It was gaunt but muscular, 
and had burning eyes that shone through long, tangled locks of hair. He had seen this thing but for a moment as it crouched upon a rock. Then it leaped down on the other side, and he made his way out of the deserted valley as quickly as possible. Young Rose's story created little agitation among the neighbors. They practically pooh-poohed it. The superstitious added it to their list of ghost tales, and inwardly resolved never again to be caught in the neighborhood of Rocky Ravine after nightfall. But the adventure was not to end so lightly. On the very next night, Monday evening, Henry Simon and William Downey, stock buyers, living in another county, rode within a short distance of the dreary valley, when they were astonished to hear the reverberation of a succession of blows, evidently made by some instrument of steel or iron. They tied their horses and walked up the dark ravine, until they arrived at a tremendous cavity which had evidently been excavated by human hands. Twenty feet below, in the darkness, someone was striking blow after blow upon the rocky bottom of the pit. "'What are you doing down there?' shouted Simon. For an answer, a stone came whizzing through the air, narrowly missing Downey's head. A big, hairy creature sprang out of the hole with a frightful yell, and disappeared with surprising rapidity over the side of the hill, still carrying its steel tool, though running apparently on four legs. The traders were stupefied with astonishment, and lost no time in getting out of the neighborhood. Their story, as related to several residents of the vicinity, taken with that of the boy Rose, created much excitement, and during the week more than one man paid a visit to Rocky Ravine, several being satisfied with a glimpse at the wild man who was now believed to inhabit it. There was little difficulty in establishing his probable identity, as the county round had not yet recovered from the agitation caused by the almost incredible actions of a family which formerly resided at the mouth of the ravine. When a special correspondent visited the place yesterday to investigate the strange stories concerning it, there was but one belief among the people regarding the strange being of the valley. He is the last of the witch-diggers, they said. The history of the witch-diggers is so remarkable as to be almost beyond belief. It is the story of a peculiar monomania that affected one by one an entire family until all were subjects for the insane asylum. The family was made up originally of hard-headed, practical people, and included three brothers, who fought bravely in the Union Army during the Civil War. A surprising feature of the entire affair is that, although it attracted widespread attention locally for weeks, and although thousands of people visited Rocky Ravine to witness the remarkable conduct of its residents, nothing of the witch-diggers has reached the public ear until now. This fact is partly accounted for by the location of the tragic events to be described below, a country as wild as any to be found in Indiana, although not many miles away from North Vernon, a thriving railroad center, and the cultured and beautiful seat of Jennings County. The sterile, stony country surrounding Rocky Ravine belongs to a section of Hoosierdom that has been the home of crime and tragedy for many years, which has hidden in its unfruitful bosom many dark secrets of the past. 
Here it was that the organized bands of horse thieves of southern Indiana had their gloomy retreats and passed their living booty from station to station among the hills south of the winding Muscatatak. Here it is that white-capping was introduced as the only cure for prevailing lawlessness, and where it was afterward abused until the white-caps became almost as much an object of public odium as their victims. Here many things could and do occur that would shock or interest the public, but which are never heard behind the confines of the dark country. This explains the general ignorance concerning the witch-diggers, whose history is as interesting as it is remarkable. The Bischler parents were honest, uncultured Swiss, who came from the canton of Bern to this country many years ago. They brought with them two children, John and Susie, and others were born as the family moved westward and finally located on a farm three miles from Damascus, Columbiana County, Ohio. When the war broke out, three sons went away to fight for the Union, John and Steve in the 65th Ohio Infantry, and Nick in the 115th Ohio Volunteers. Steve was only a boy of 14, and was killed at the Battle of Franklin. John was drowned in the Mississippi, while Nick, who had just reached his majority, came back alone to the farm in Ohio. The parents died soon after, and Nick became the protector of his elder sister Susan, still unmarried and likely to remain so, and a brother, Sammy, who had never been burdened with any alarming amount of gray tissue. The three lived together, cultivating the little farm and making a comfortable subsistence until the spirit of unrest, which had been bred in Nick Bischler by his war experience, led him to sell the old homestead and move to Indiana. He bought a farm of forty acres, hilly, stony, and marked with deep chasms and ravines, which lay about four miles southwest of Butlerville, a small station on the O&M Railroad. This was ten years or more ago, and the Bischlers soon became known among the country folks as honest, hard-working people, a type of the respectable lower classes of Europe. Nick was a fine-looking man of middle age, with a sturdy form and bright blue eyes that contrasted well with his black hair. His heavy mustache and military air made him an object of admiration among the fair sex, but he never paid attention to the damsels of the neighborhood, seeming content to work day after day along with his sister and simple-minded brother. As for Susan, she was never in question as a marriageable quantity. She was an eerie creature, looking just a witch herself, with her great staring great eyes, hawk-bill nose, and capacious mouth, the only visible teeth of which were two false ones that were continually making their presence known by protruding beyond the shriveled lips of their wearer. Sammy was a small, dark man who rarely talked, except to repeat what someone else had said. The farm occupied by the Bischlers was a lonely place, lying some distance off the road and with no neighboring homes near the little frame shanty where the trio lived. About a quarter of a mile away from the house was a deep rocky cleft between high hills, which was known as Rocky Ravine. 
the narrow zigzag valley was a gloomy enough place even in the daytime and some ugly stories were told about it but they were for the most part vague and ill-founded such was the bichler family when they first came to the neighborhood and for years afterward the curious hallucination which wrecked the minds of an entire family and set them upon the care of the world was first manifested in sammy the youngest of the trio one day sammy was left alone in the solitary cabin and when nick returned he found the poor fellow crouched down beneath the bed staring immovably at one of the small windows of the structure he had seen something awful this much was obtained from him by much questioning though sammy as a rule confined his conversational efforts to a repetition of some other person's remarks something had come in through the window but what it was and what it did or what it became were questions that sammy never answered save in the vaguest possible manner he soon ceased to talk about the matter but it was noticed that he would never remain alone in the house again he had no liking for the farm either particularly avoiding the shadowy depth of rocky ravine and he was often seen walking alone miles away from the dreary fields that were his home conversation with sammy was never very enjoyable and when in a sullen mood as he was almost all the time now he could not be induced to open his mouth even to reply to a simple salutation the neighboring farmers paid little note to his eccentricities but would say poor sammy he never was very smart he's clean daft now months passed and just as twilight was falling after a hot summer day the uncanny form of susan bischler was seen at the residence of thomas spencer a well-to-do farmer who was the nearest neighbor of the swiss family her big eyes were wilder in appearance than ever before while her shrunken form was trembling with excitement what is it susan asked mr spencer te have zot nick she whispered looking about her fearfully before replying they who te witches what did they do with them inquired mr spencer who was somewhat puzzled by the woman's manner i don't know they come in through a window like monkeys and take poor nick and choke him then i throw something at him and they gave after me and i run over here oh poor nick they have got him i'm afraid while susan was still talking nick came plodding up to the gate in his heavy boots showing no indications of having had any difficulty with the witches he took his elder sister by the arm and started away without a word susan has seen some witches said the neighbor she was dreaming replied big nick gruffly as he proceeded homeward half dragging the woman with him despite her protestations of fear he was right susan had been dreaming but it was a dream which he was fated to share before many weeks whether his sturdy common sense was not proof against the weirdness of his surroundings or whether the belief in witches was a monomania that was born in the bichlers is a question that may puzzle the wisest heads certain it is that nick the strongest of the trio in mind and body 
himself fell a victim to the same superstitions that had worked such havoc in the minds of his relatives. The fact was first discovered while Susan was telling a passing farmer how strange women with long faces and arms, hatless and barefoot, glided up to the shanty and peered through the windows. How monkeys with human heads entered the door and upset the tables and chairs. How monstrous snakes crawled into the little yard and spat great wads of venom at the weather-beaten boards of the cabin and how a thousand other inexplicable events were taking place night and day on the poor little forty-acre farm where the Bishlers were trying so hard to make a living. "'All vitches,' repeated Susan in her dismal, whining voice, "'to women, to monkeys, to snakes, everything, all vitches.' "'Why don't you tell your sister that she's mistaken, Nick?' asked the farmer impatiently. "'Maybe she's right.' returned Nick, gloomily, as he strode away. It was not long before the superstition of the Bishlers was productive of astonishing and even dangerous results. The phases of the disease, which finally drove every one of them stark mad on the subject of witches, cannot be described, as their farm lay off the highways, and no one cared to visit the house whose own residence had given it anything but a good name. Susan, now a veritable old hag with flaming eyes, in which no spark of reason shone, came to a neighbor's house at long intervals, always gibbering about the vitches which infested her home. Sammy wandered about as usual, but nothing could induce him to speak. Big Nick was seldom seen, and then but for a moment. As he hastened on his way over the hills, he called his own. Nick seemed to be always in a hurry now. He was thinner, too, and his lowering brow was wrinkled with some trouble, of which he spoke to no one. Indeed, he avoided everybody outside of his own family, and his surly replies to civil interrogations soon gave him the solitude he desired, for Nick was powerful, and his eyes glittered with an unnatural, dangerous light at times. A hunter was toiling along the rough slope of one of the hills that encircles Rocky Ravine one day, when he saw two men working in the bottom of the chasm. The larger of the two was wielding an axe with tremendous vigor, while the other was using a shovel with untiring energy. Nearby, sitting on a rock, was a woman who was watching the laboring men with intense interest. For the life of him, to use his own expression, the hunter couldn't see what the men were working at, and he stumbled down the hill to satisfy his curiosity in this respect. His coming was unnoticed by the three people below. The men kept on working as if their lives depended on it, while the woman's eye never left them. The axe was falling on rock, and now and then the men would lift a great slab from the bottom of the hollow and carry it out of the cavity, which was ten or twelve feet deep. The hunter became more curious than ever, and after repeated questioning, the woman turned and said, "'Teviches are under the rocks.'" The three Bishlers now had but one thought, one occupation. Their days and nights were spent in hunting witches. The frame shanty was deserted, or rather surrendered, to the eerie enemies of the family. 
The two brothers and the sister remained in Rocky Ravine all the time, waging furious war against the witches. Nick somehow became impressed with the belief that the Stony Valley was the chief home of the unfriendly spirits, and as he was the leading spirit of the trio, the Bishlers remained constantly in the chasm, sleeping but little, and then on the bare rocks. The farm was entirely neglected. A calf died of starvation. The Bishlers said the witches had killed it. A horse went the way of all earthly beings. The Bishlers killed all their cattle for fear they would breed more witches. A half-starved hen made its way to the ravine in search of food. The Bishlers set upon it with axe and club and hung the mangled remains to a tree as a warning to the other witches. A big green frog happened to leap into the hole where the men were working. They beat and chopped it into a thousand bits and added the few pieces of it that could be found to their trophies. Susan gathered a wagon load of switches, and with these the Bishlers occasionally massacred a witch in the shape of a luckless bird a butterfly, a snake, or a bug. They kept tab on all of the slain witches by sticking pegs in the earth on a level spot a few yards from the seat of their labors, and here, after a successful battle with the common enemy, the three lunatics would gather, dancing around the sticks and screaming with laughter. They even sang of their triumphs at times, a monotonous chant, telling of the number killed, and threatening more dire results in the next engagement. Their trophies of victory increased until they had a large collection made up of the carcasses of birds and beasts and many inanimate objects. These relics would have been laughable had it not been for the terrible earnestness of the people who had gathered them. For three weeks the Bishlers lived in the ravine, working with frenzied energy and hardly stopping even to eat. The story of the hunter was soon noised about, and crowds of people came to witness the work of the witch-diggers. Strange to say, no effort was made to check the deluded wretches from their fruitless labors, although they were rapidly approaching the stage of utter exhaustion. During this period, the Bishler boys, with only one axe, a pick, and a shovel for tools, dug a trench seventy-five feet in length and from fifteen to twenty-five feet deep down through the rocks, which have but a shallow coating of earth. The two men worked in a zigzag manner, always attacking a rock, no matter how large, whenever they could find one. They removed boulders from the mammoth trench that ten men would find trouble in handling. The brothers seemed gifted with superhuman strength as well as energy, and they continued to dig long after they had struck water. For days they stood hip-deep in the pool, until their ragged trousers rotted away, leaving only the trunks. Whenever they removed a particularly large rock, they would find a witch, sometimes three or four, but after killing them, more of the creatures could be heard further down. It is averred by the best citizens of the locality that Nick Bishler worked for nearly two weeks without sleeping and without sitting down, the others building a fire by night, in the light of which he threw his relentless axe. The crowd kept increasing, until it was not unusual to see thousands of people on the surrounding hillsides watching the labors of the poor wretches in the ravine, who did not even seem aware of the attention they were receiving. 
The Bishlers, in fact, became as great an attraction as a circus or a county fair to the people for miles around, and to none of the visitors did it occur that the miserable maniacs should be placed in confinement before they killed themselves. The story of the remarkable occurrences at Rocky Ravine finally reached North Vernon, however, and Mayor W. S. Prather, Attorney W. M. Fitzgerald, and Dr. E. W. Bance drove the seat of war one Sunday. On the next day, the Bishlers were prisoners on charges of lunacy. It was full time for such action. Poor Nick Bishler was nothing more than a living skeleton, being reduced from a weight of a hundred and sixty pounds to half as much. He was so weak that but a few more strokes were left in his once powerful arm, and the enforced quiet after such excessive labors plunged him into a stupor of exhaustion, from which it seemed he would never be aroused. Sammy was but a little better, for he had done his utmost to bail the water out of the great trench, and might have succeeded had the perverse liquid not run back again as fast as he threw it out. Susan's wiry form seemed little injured by her long labor in open air. Nick was violently insane and was sent to the state asylum at Indianapolis, but was returned to the Jennings County poor farm, where Susan and Sammy already were. Nick did not remain. After a few hours' stay, he walked out of the infirmary unobserved and escaped into the tangled forests of the surrounding hills. And now comes the question, which is interesting the people residing in the vicinity of Rocky Ravine. Who is the wild man of the valley? Is it Nick Bishler in person, or his shade returned to the earth to finish the labor of driving the witches from the forty-acre farm? The latter theory is one that few intelligent people will entertain for a moment, and unless one disbelieves the stories of credible witnesses, is forced to the opinion that the poor maniac has sought once more the scene of his remarkable labors. How he subsists, and where he hides during the day, can only be imagined. The rocky fastness of this portion of Indiana would cover an army of men. However, poor Nick, if it is indeed he, seems to fear recapture almost as much as he feared witches. And only by night can his wild, grizzled figure be seen stealing toward the trench where the witches live. The mystery of the valley cannot long remain one, as the place seems to have a terrible fascination for the wild creature who visits it, and his capture is almost certain. In company with Mr. J. D. Fraser, the jovial station agent of North Vernon, who has taken a peculiar interest in the strange adventures of the witch-diggers, your correspondent visited the county poor farm, where Susan and Sammy Bishler live. Susan was found in her own room, complaining of the rheumatism. It is to vicious, she said in a commonplace tone. So they still bother you? Oh, yes, yes. Tay come in all the time, and I can't get rid of him. Nick's run away. Where to, Susie? Back to the old place. He's taken terra kin, I think. Why do you think so? Oh, he didn't kill them all. And when he runned away, he said he was come back. Outside of her superstition, old Susan is very intelligent, and she told the history of her family in a very entertaining manner. Sammy was seen, too, 
but after offering to shake hands with a visitor, he changed his mind and drew back to strike him. Vitch, vitch, he shouted. He thinks you're a witch, remarked Superintendent McManaman. He tinked you a vitch, repeated Sammy, parrot-like and still gazing at the newcomer with frightened eyes. The farm where the witch diggers lived is now occupied by Charles Hale, a prosperous farmer, who is the father of Professor Tice's manager. The old shanty where the Bishlers first saw their sinister enemies retained the reputation of being haunted, given it by its owners, until very recently, when one night it went up in flames and smoke. Nothing remains as evidence of the events recorded above, except the mighty trench in Rocky Ravine, the broken boulders, and the other debris incident to the search for the witches. From the Times, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, August 21st, 1892. When you come into these stories, I want to try to prove as much as possible that they're true i mean it's hard to prove that the people were real you want to make sure right yeah so, so that's where you start and with this one it's it's so strange it's easy to think that that it never happened that it's unreal but it is in fact true it really happened as best as we can tell yes the people were real we know that much so the bishlers my wife did the genealogy on them. She's a pretty... Uh, awesome? Yeah, she's pretty good at that. She gets it genetically from her father and her grandfather. We're also uh, pretty hardcore genealogists. So she helped me track the Bishlers down and find some information on them. What they say in the article is absolutely true with the number of children. Sammy's real name might have been Henry. There's a note in the um, census of a Henry Bishler, okay. and no mention of Sammy. I think they mentioned that he was dark-complected even, okay. and I think they mentioned that in the article as well. That he Okay. So his real name might have been Henry. Maybe Sammy was a nickname. Yeah. Who knows? Other than that, all the information seems dead on that they mentioned in the article, except that, from what we can tell, all three of the brothers that went to the Civil War... Were in the same regiment. Were, yeah, same okay. regiment, unless Nick was maybe transferred yeah. at some point away and that and that's not in the uh, records that we found so here we end up having we have four brothers one sister but the brothers in the war uh one died and then there's an interesting story about the other brother yeah john was a prisoner of war i fought for the union so he would have been a prisoner in one of the uh, southern prison camps and he died on a very famous maritime tragedy it was actually the biggest maritime tragedy in the history of the United States. Yeah, it's crazy. The Sultana explosion. It was a steamship that blew up, I think it was on the Mississippi, April 27th, 1865. And it was filled with thousands of POW, well, released POWs. It was overfilled. There were more people than were supposed to be on it, correct? Many more. Yeah. Many, many more people. Then it exploded. They were warned about it. The captain had made some kind of deal with the colonel to, to get all these prisoners home or something. He, he took a bribe. 
or the colonel took a bribe. The Sultana story is really, really interesting. Interesting, yeah. It's really worth looking into. We could probably do an episode on that, and we might. We, yeah, we very well might. So it exploded April 27th, 1865. In the article, they say he drowned. They don't mention, they don't mention that he drowned because the Sultana exploded. Yeah, and, and, uh, what I think about that is when you ask people how they don't want to die, usually... Fire and drowning come up, and that gentleman and many other were faced with either dying by fire or by water. Yeah, and he could have burned and then yeah. drowned, for all we know. I mean, it's it's a horrible story. So you start out with this this horrible family history going into it. The Civil War wasn't a pretty war anyway. Yeah. So Nick is the only of the three brothers that went to war who's coming home. And I can imagine he was not very well. He's seen some things, and he was probably a, a bit shaken, though the article doesn't say anything necessarily about his his condition on returning home. It doesn't, but he does seem to keep to himself. Yeah. And he moves the family mm-hmm. from Ohio to Indiana. And that's where the strangeness begins. It does. So there's these elements that pop up that I recognized in the Wishdigger story that made me look at it as a Bigfoot thing. In other words, they're talking about human-headed monkeys in the article. They're talking about them coming through. They're supposedly what started this, yeah. So these these old articles, obviously they didn't have Bigfoot. It Mm -hmm. wasn't a name back then. They they called them wild Wild men. They didn't have a lot of names for these. I think maybe the Bishwars were calling them witches. Yeah. So these creatures... I'm assuming they're Bigfoots, you know. Mm -hmm. So I looked in the area. I just thought, out of curiosity, I shift my research (laughs) from Pennsylvania to Indiana for for a bit. And I looked up wild men in the area and gorillas. Mm -hmm. This is the late 1800s. Mostly you look for wild men. That's mostly what they call these creatures. They didn't have a real name for them uh, in the vocabulary. If you're not familiar with a gorilla at this point, you know. Yeah, as we said in the in episode three, Bigfoot didn't come around until the fifties, I believe it was. Yeah, right? like fifties, sixties, really didn't come into common use probably to the seventies. But the mountain gorilla wasn't known to the West until really the late eighteen hundreds. Most people wouldn't have had it as a vocabulary word. So, what do you call a hairy thing that walks on two legs that you see? You call it a, a wild man, and I guess that's the, the the attitude of a lot of these old articles and and again for my book I'm I'm just neck deep in this stuff. So there's this sort of undercurrent that when a man abandons society, turns his back on society and goes off to live in the woods, somehow he grows hair like an animal. Yes. It's, and they'll mention like Darwin sometimes. Yeah, evolution doesn't take a very long time apparently. You go out in the woods for one day and you gr- you grow hair all over your body. Yeah, it's a matter of just turning your back on society and, and, and you'll start to grow hair. That was kind of the attitude and, and belief of uh, a lot of people, I think, back then. So then the mountain gorilla becomes known because they were bringing him over from circuses for for circuses for zoos and they were taking pictures of them that were appearing in newspapers so people would see them traveling around sometimes or they'd see pictures of them in the newspaper so now now they had something to call it now they said oh it's a gorilla i saw a gorilla in in the woods so you find these these gorilla articles too so i looked around for for wild men and gorillas in indiana around the same time as the witch diggers article 
And interestingly enough, very close by, I found these articles. A Hoosier gorilla. Recent discoveries made in a cave in Jennings County. Vernon, April 3rd. This is one of the oldest towns in Indiana and is surrounded by rock-ribbed hills. Years ago, a subterranean cavern was reported to have been discovered by a man residing here named Barnes, which he claimed to have explored for a short distance, discovering a large, tall form, somewhat resembling a human, but appearing to be naked and covered with a tuft or growth of hair. Barnes was so frightened that he fled from the presence of the image, whatever it was, and was so ridiculed when he told his story that he never revealed the secret of the location of his cave. The story has now been revived by a startling discovery made yesterday by Alexander Shepard, a real estate dealer, who was showing a farm to a prospective purchaser. Going up a deep ravine, whose bed is covered with stone for a long distance, they accidentally discovered a small entrance or hole that went underneath a large hill. Procuring a lantern from a neighbor, they entered the opening with some difficulty and soon found themselves inside a large and lofty cavern, the rooms glittering with stalagmites and stalactites, like other caverns of its character abounding in southern Indiana. After passing through numerous chambers, each more elaborate and beautiful than the one just gone through, they stopped to gaze on the magnificent spectacle that greeted them on every hand. But suddenly their admiration turned to horror, and their hair stood on end, as they discovered only a few feet from them the huge form of what seemed to be a gorilla, or some being resembling a wild man, naked and covered apparently with a rough coat of brown hair. After gazing on the intruders for a moment, it gave a low guttural snort and went ambling off into the deep impenetrable darkness of the cavern. It appeared to be over six feet in height. After this strange being disappeared, the explorers turned to the right and discovered what appeared to be a storeroom, which was found to contain piles of potatoes, corn and wheat, and bones of fowls, and in another room adjoining this one was found numerous bones dry with age. For a long time, almost nightly, strange noises have been heard in the locality of the deep wood surrounding this subterranean cavern, and all attempts to fathom the mystery proved a failure. No one could ever discover the source of the noise, and dogs refused to investigate it. Farmers in the locality were losing their products almost nightly, and no one knew where they went. It seemed that in making its nightly incursions, it always followed the stony pathway of the stream leading to the cavern, and this accounted for failure to trace him to his hiding place. Years ago, a wild man, or similar personage, inhabited Trimble County, Kentucky, and later Jefferson County, this state, adjoining this Jennings County, and for some years now no trace of him has been known. This being is believed to be the same. A large party is being organized to explore the labyrinth of the mysterious cavern and discover the character of its occupant. The Indiana State Sentinel, Indianapolis, Indiana, April 8, 1891.
Two honest, sober citizens of Marion have seen a wild man near that place. Angola Herald, Angola, Indiana, September 6, 1893. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Dot com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Tonight we're talking with Joshua Cutchen. Joshua, you've got what two books out? Yeah, yeah, I, I do. Uh, both uh, three anomalous books: um, a Trojan Feast, uh, which is about the sort of uh, the role of food in anomalous encounters, and uh, the Brimstone Deceit, which looks at the commonalities of, of scent in a lot of these fourteen events. Huh. And we're not going to talk to you about either of those. <laughs> I know it's refreshing. That <laughs> is very I'm, interesting. I'm excited to not talk about it. Yeah, <laughs> but we will have to have you back on uh, at some point and dig into the the taste and smell of the paranormal with you. Yeah, and where can you get those? Um, they're available through Amazon or Barnes and Noble. Okay. But tonight we're talking about the witch diggers, which is an article I threw your way. Basically, just because I heard you talking about a certain episode of Sasquatch Chronicles on Where Did the Road Go, I found some commonalities there, and I thought, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring Joshua on and talk to him about that. Well, this this really did uh, tickle my 14 funny bone, because, you know, a, a lot of what I like to see is, and I think we're kindred spirits in this sense, I like to see how these sort of topics overlap and overlay and intersect, and... Uh, this this particular account has it's sort of a grab bag of, of things, but with this really interesting core of that what looks like you know sort of a Sasquatch report surrounded by all this real real strangeness. To me, like the really interesting thing is is uh, and I did I did ask Wes to come on from Sasquatch Chronicles, but uh, 
Never got back. He never got back to me. He's talked about this case several times, and, and you did on, on Soraya's show, like I said. Basically, it's, this is a modern account of these two brothers who had these creatures that were coming up around their house. In Tennessee. And they had a, a psychic medium come on, and she told the brothers that they were demons or somehow demonic. They were coming from the earth. Yeah, they were coming from the ground. Mm-hmm. Also, they, they mentioned this weird sort of uh, woman that was walking around that, that they kept seeing. That's the part that yeah. really intrigues me. Yeah, it's it's just I've always said that with these sort of phenomena, it really does behoove us to take note of the sort of company they keep. You know, um, the fact that Alistair Crowley set up his home on the shores of Loch Ness, <laughs> where there's supposedly this Loch Ness monster, I find interesting. And similarly, when you have an account like this particular one, um, two two guys who, if I recall the account correctly, um, were very much on the flesh and blood Sasquatch train. And then, you know, they heard this and they were like, ah, I don't know about that. And then as, you know, they sort of started seeing more things and seeing um, more, uh, you know, unexplainable things, they really uh, started to come around to the idea, well, maybe there is something here, for lack of a better term, demonic. Now, of course, to clarify, I mean, if you look at the way that that term has been used over the past couple of millennia, it doesn't necessarily mean the same thing that it means now. Yeah, but that, uh, that's yeah. my thing. Like, like the when we start talking about demonic stuff, I always say let's be really careful because I, I think, I, for the most part, our concept of demons is probably very childlike. Yeah, um, it's well, I, I think I think it really does stem from you know I'm I'm a Christian myself, but I think it stems from this really tiresome this tiresome dichotomy that's been set up this this false dichotomy where if things aren't of god they must be of of the devil and uh you know i think it's i think it's it's much more likely to me to sort of view these things in, in terms of an, sort of an ecosystem i mean you know it, there are probably you no know, there are things that are overtly malign and things that are, are, you know, overtly benevolent. But I think there's a lot of stuff that's just trying to make its own way in the world and, you know, can, can, uh, you know, go one way or the other. And I think that, you know, it's something that doesn't get talked about a lot, but the, uh, the whole Sasquatch thing plugs into fairy folklore really well. And I know that this isn't a surprise to anybody who follows my work that I'm interested in the fairy angle on it. Um, but it, it really does plug in, to like this idea of like a forest poltergeist or, uh, you know, sort of a, a, a woodland elemental uh, spirit in, in a way that I think that is, is really underappreciated in discourse nowadays. I absolutely agree. In, in fact, when we were on uh, Soraya's show together, you, you mentioned that so much of this Bigfoot activity in the woods, uh, you know, throwing rocks and weird noises and, and so forth just correspond with, with poltergeist activity. It's a little light went off my head, like, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and, you know, the, the lights, the, the lights, the uh, the rocks will be uh, warm to the touch, which is a very poltergeist thing. Now, you could argue that, you know, Bigfoot was keeping it under his arm or something, I guess. That <laughs> that, <laughs> that could be the possibility, too. But, you know, disembodied voices, um, unpleasant smells, wrappings. You know, several things which we have in this particular story. I mean, that was my first thought is that uh, they made the connection uh, for one of the witnesses seeing this shaggy wild man 
in in the woods and they said that was you know that there was a succession of blows that was being heard and my before they even revealed that it was you know possibly some sort of digging tool my first thought went to wood knocks i mean like, that's what you always hear is you know this idea of this this knocking sound in the forest and of course it's immediately followed up by a stone flying through the air so all these things that 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 smell squatchy and, you know, even, again, look at the company that these things keep. Even if it is, you know, in this case, a flesh-and-blood Sasquatch, it's chosen an awfully strange place to be, given the history of the family in that area, if everything is to be, you know, believed. Yeah, there's there's just an odd, uh, it's an odd menu <laughs> to choose <laughs> yeah, from yeah. there. Uh, it's, it's, it's a very high, strange mouthfeel, I think, is what, <laughs> it's in terms of the phrasing that I would probably use. What do you make of again in in both the the Sasquatch Chronicles thing and this? You had this this weird woman creeping around, you know, w- with the creatures. Well, um, speaking of strange in, company, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and I and I don't want to be like I've I've been on the fairy train for so long. I feel like if you're too embedded in a certain paradigm and you're not changing the way that you think in these sort of topics, then it's probably not a good thing. But I've been so persuaded by some of the stuff that I've, I've found out about, you know, the way that the fairy folklore, whatever it's describing, if it really is fairies or if it's something, you know, of a different variety, whatever that's describing is so compellingly connective to all this. And you know, I, one thing that's been inter- that's an interesting connection that a lot of people haven't really put together that often is um, this idea of you know the fairy queen. If you look at uh, sort of fairy folklore as as a, as a whole, you'll find oftentimes that there are these shorter fa- these shorter fae folk who are being supervised by a taller fairy queen, and you see the exact same motif um, in the abduction experience, where sometimes there's literally a woman, but oftentimes just a taller gray alien you know, standing and supervising these shorter grays, oftentimes, you know, holding a wand in in both cases. So, you know, I wonder if perhaps there isn't some sort of supervisory feminine spirit, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of, um, I'm reminded of, you know, Terrence McKenna would say the mother goddess, (laughs) Um, (laughs) or, you know, uh, we would make some sort of reference to that. Um, but, I think that there is a history of, of qualifying if we're going to sort of get really esoteric deep in the weeds here, there is a strong tradition worldwide of characterizing nature as, as feminine, you know, Gaia, mother earth, that sort of thing, mother ayahuasca. And I wonder if perhaps, you know, there isn't some sort of element that's being manifested in that way here. That's the that's the most sense that I can make out of it. It sounds as logical as anything to me. It's certainly as logical as some sort of witch that's summoning these hairy things. What I see is with the archety- like the archetype thing, and, and there's the, there's the visions of Mary, and then the the feminine kind of overseer all throughout the world, and, and every culture has got different things. But what what intrigues me about this is it's almost the exact same description. For both situations of of the old white, is it the like she's all kind of white? It's got the um, pale complexion and, and long face. It's almost identical. I almost feel like these brothers may have heard that story and incorporated it because it's so identical in this particular in these two particular situations. 
Oh yeah, I mean it's 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 very specific. Now I can't remember. I can't recall. Do you remember where that those brothers were from in the modern encounter? It was Tennessee, I believe. Okay, it's not too far geographically removed. No. There was a couple people who jumped in, I think, in the Sasquatch Chronicles forum and started listing, like, oh, I saw, you know, a weird-looking woman in conjunction with a, a Sasquatch uh, sighting or something as well. So it, it appears to be one of these things that happens that people just don't note that much. I'm wondering if it's like, like, I always bring up UFOs and Sasquatch, how, you know, a lot of your Sasquatch researchers throw out the UFOs, you know, when they happen at the same time. Out the, right. out the window goes the UFOs, and they'll tell you all, all day about the Sasquatch thing. Because because our subject isn't the crazy subject. It's, uh, <laughs> it's but when our people say that they saw Bigfoot, well, they're they're you know telling the truth. But when those people say that they saw a flying saucer, well, they're crazy. I mean, that's that's part of the reason. And I have there is an attitude that I feel like is is thawing a bit. Um, but there has historically been this attitude that if people report anything high strange in a Bigfoot encounter that, you know, it, they're basically their entire encounter should be discredited, but there, it happens too often. And you'll hear people say, well, it doesn't happen in most cases. Well, yeah, most cases are, you know, a roadside crossing. Although I think that there's something sort of anomalous about the timing of those events usually. But, um, there is just enough weird it's it's like the ufo thing like maybe a lot of those cases that you see don't have that high strangeness component but if you start like sort of uh if you start sort of digging around the edges of that person's life a little bit you'll start to see these other motifs that come up and it's just it's 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 that aspect of it i think is pretty darn consistent you know if you take a roadside crossing these are usually so brief but if you have people who have um, like ongoing contact, like these brothers, for instance, and, or the, the Witch Diggers family in the article, you almost always start getting really, really weird stuff in, in conjunction. Just, you know, not just stuff that'll make you start going, is this just an ape? You know? Yeah. Well, you know, sometimes I wonder if the, the time, if there are certain growing pains that esoteric subjects go through. And if you take like an arbitrary a beginning point for you know the ologies like okay so i know that i know that people were into cryptids well before the patterson gimlin footage but if you look at the patterson gimlin event or like the wallace attracts wallace tracks rather a sort of a watershed moment i wonder if perhaps you can't see the sort of through line where certain disciplines, these certain fringe disciplines evolve and they eventually start to become more accepting of alternative ideas. Or if there isn't like everybody starts out with this nuts and bolts idea and then slowly but surely it, it becomes a little bit more accepting of other fringier ideas. And I guess that's sort of, you know, I guess that is what one would expect because you're trying to start with the most parsimonious and the most logical starting starting point explanation rather um before you know exhausting all those options and saying well maybe it's something really weird but sometimes i wonder if there isn't like this this sort of growing pains that every 14 discipline has to go through before they can eventually start saying okay yeah this is this is getting weird there's some stuff here that we can't quite nail down i can see that i you know when you talk about the nuts and bolts ufo people you know and and that's started to go away you know gradually so hopefully the uh the strict ape in the woods, Bigfoot people can uh, can soften on that. And I, I I always have to give this caveat. I do want to say I believe people are seeing something, and I believe something's leaving hair and footprints and scat behind. I just don't think it's as simple yes. as, as an ape in the woods. That's all I'm saying. 
You know, um, sometimes I, 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 I think, I mean, you know, in, the, in this particular example, um, you're talking about repeat people or like habituators, like repeaters, UFO repeaters, as they used to be called derogatorily used to be made fun of all the time. People who would see UFOs, you know, time and again, now it's become something that really makes people sit up and say, Oh, well, if you've seen it this many times, you probably have some sort of ongoing contact experience. So that, that attitude has completely changed. And I think that you're starting to see attitudes like that completely sort of shift in the Bigfoot, you know, realm as well. Um, but you know, to, to sort of, to sort of, um, build off of what you just said i i mean yeah there there is a there is a physical component and i would even in the case of bigfoot say a physical like biological component um to these experiences uh just as there is a physical component that interacts with the physical world in ufo experiences but i think that there's something supplemental grafted onto that and you know sometimes i wonder if there isn't some sort of phenomena that is saying that is using sort of the the pageantry of primates just as the ufo phenomena uses the pageantry and the imagery of you know our popular culture and our sci-fi um to sort of get to sort of get to us to sort of bridge that gap between whatever it is and whatever its motives are and you know and 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 human beings i could totally see that i could totally see that what's easiest to grasp we have to start somewhere (laughs) exactly yeah yeah, the other thing that, that was in common between both uh, the Sasquatch Chronicles account and this was the the psychic medium told the brothers in, in the Sasquatch Chronicles account that, that the creatures were coming out of the ground. And the major part of the Witch Diggers article has to do with them, you know, digging into the ground yeah. to, to find these <laughs> supposed witches. Right. So, and I'm I'm guessing that ties right in with fairy lore. I mean, yes. I mean, you kind of, you kind of have to wonder maybe the the family actually failed and you know the, the bishlers actually failed and the witches did come up and the witches are what sasquatch looks like i mean it wouldn't there's a there's a precedent for that i mean if you look at the minerva monster events um of ohio um people described the sasquatch that they saw it was this big tall hairy witch is what they said but you know in any case there is a sort of a precedent for like hairy hairy witch hairy witches as it were so sometimes i wonder if like you know the family didn't fail and the witches you know popped out and they just look like these you know axe wielding sasquatch um but you're right uh, there is a strong again strong faithful component i mean really a strong everything component i mean so you've got this idea of these witches living underground um some people have proposed even though there's not a lot of good evidence some people have proposed that perhaps sasquatch resides in caves underground you have persistent rumors of military bases underground and you know military alien joint bases underground you have the shaver mysteries we talked about the darrows and the tarot's you had the the faith folk who lived in fairy mounds who would literally you know go underground to their to their dwelling you know where do we bury people where do ghosts come from underground and you can even look at this metaphor as continuing i mean you know if you look at lake monsters it's still this 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 motif of of submersion so you know i think someone like if you are familiar with the work of, of patrick harper he would say that this was you know an expression of of you know sort of the 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 sh- the young the union shadow you know the subconscious sort of you know being occluded to us um, not that he thinks that there isn't some sort of objective phenomena going on but you know I, I think that that's such a that's such a beautiful and sort of elegant metaphor for the way that these things react and you know 
I, I like the idea that you know there's that the the presence of these things underground might not be literal and is more trying to tell us something about these presences themselves, about how they interact with us and about maybe even where they come from, coming from some sort of collective unconscious. But yeah, the the the, the underground slash submersion slash occluded sort of metaphor is um, very persistent. I mean. It's thing, things are always just out of touch on the other side, you know, on the other on the beyond the forest's edge, beyond the Earth's atmosphere. This is where you know these monsters lurk, um, and I think that uh, you know this is a, this is another good example of people folding in that motif. I'm very much on that train. The, the uh, I'm reading Patrick Harper's Demonic Reality right now. Oh, it's uh, so good! Yeah. It's so good. And I'm I'm completely on the Jungian archetype train uh, as far as these things go. Yeah, and you know, people get upset uh, when you say something like that, which a isn't a good attitude to have if you're interested in these things. Because yeah. if you really, you know, if if you're really looking for the truth, you don't really have a dog in the fight. But b, I think that they overlook like how they think that it means that it's all you know in your head. No, I mean it means that to the contrary, it almost means that anything in your head is is real to some exactly. extent. Exactly. Exactly, which I which I find just as I mean I find that opens up even more possibilities than any other you know sort of objective siloed. Here are the Bigfoot, here are the Sasquatch, here are the Bigfoot, here are the aliens, here's the you know the the lake monster, here's the this, here's the that. Uh, I think that that's yeah. I mean I, it's it's not a particularly popular view, but I, it's 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 like top six theories for me probably. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Yeah, I have a. Uh, you know, I kind of extend it into the the folks that that leave you know apples for Sasquatch in the woods. Say it's an offering. You know, you you take this back to the to the old days. You know, where people would leave out and and again we're talking about food for the fairies or or uh, yeah, it's you know it's just it's um it's <laughs> go ahead yeah sorry go ahead no no, no I was just, I was just gonna say no, it's it grafts on so surprisingly well. You know, and if you look at sort of what happens in both those cases, if you forgot to leave food out for your pixies, um, if you forgot to, you know, uh, put beer in the corner found in the the keystone of your house where you have a hole where you used to put beer for the brownies, um, they would they would wreck your life. They'd wreck your life. They'd wreck your livestock. And if you look at accounts where if people are to be believed, they have left uh, stuff out uh, for Sasquatch apples and whatnot, or even, you know, even, you know, even more elaborate offerings. Um, if something happens and they stop that, the Sasquatch tend to get really angry and they wreck your household and they kill your livestock if people are to be believed. And you know what? Even if even if even if those stories aren't true, I find them compelling because I refuse to believe that some of these people are that well versed in fairy folklore. It's almost says that the people, you know, even when people make stuff up, they're tapping into this thing that's out there that has to have some sort of objective truth, even if it's just the way that mankind explains uh uh, forces beyond their control in this reality. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's something. That, I mean, this commonality that that reaches across, and and I think this has become the overarching theme of our podcast. And and it started just because we'd find ghost stories where we found Sasquatch sightings, where we find UFO sightings again and again and again. As we're putting pins on the map, it doesn't. You know, we got a, a blue pin for a ghost and a. And a red one for a Sasquatch and a green one for a UFO, they're going in the same place. And after a while, we start going, huh. <laughs> you know, yeah. there seems to be something to this. 
my issue, it's not even an issue because I, I mean, it's, you know, I'm a member of several different Bigfoot groups on, on, let's just take on Facebook for, for an example. And some of them are strict, uh, flesh and blood groups. They don't want to hear any other theory. They want nothing, you know, no at woo as they call it. No, <laughs> no woo allowed to, to people like that. I just, I just, and it's again, it's why I say again and again, I absolutely believe something's leaving footprints and hair behind. It's not, but to, to try to marry these concepts, you know, to, uh, to, to someone who either doesn't believe at all or, or believes it's a, it's an ape in the woods. It's just so difficult to, to try to get it across to them. Like, I'm not fighting with you on, on you know, on the, the physicality of this thing. I'm just saying there's there's more to it, and there's these other elements that, that weave into these other paranormal things so well. Yeah, it's, it's one of the reasons that, uh, I mean, I have an essay that's coming out in a, in a compilation of uh, ufology essays this May uh, that is about this. But this is one of those reasons why I double down on sci, sci phenomena. And I sort of get I get disheartened when someone is interested in these subjects and haven't availed themselves of how good the sci phenomena research is out there, how peer how, how some how some of it's been peer reviewed, you know, um, we're dealing with some some uh, amazing, amazing research that uh, is just tearing down this materialist idea that we you know exist in this this meaningless universe that you know where where the the fundamental quality of everything is matter. It's just you know atoms. It, it, it's great research, and it's just getting better by the it's getting better by the year. And you give a generation or two of these you know old, this old guard this old guard scientific establishment to die off, and this is going to be the the rule of the day. Now, having said that, it doesn't mean that I don't need to. It doesn't mean that I don't need to go to the bathroom and I don't need to sleep. You know, <laughs> well, what it does mean is that there's uh, there's another component that is completely intangible that that can interact with this, you know, with the physical. Um, not that there is no physical world. It's just that the physical and the, in the non-physical uh, can interact. To me, I, they can't be separated. So yeah, well, yeah, exactly. It's it again, it, it bugs me because, you know, you'll have these same people who are talking about, well, you know, no woo stories <laughs> defend vociferously the, People who are who are you know ridiculed um, about seeing Bigfoot and you know hearing strange talking in the woods. Oh, that must be Bigfoot. This and that and the other. But then they'll ridicule someone who has like an extra little strange component. It just it just seems so hypocritical. Yeah, it gets pulled um, out immediately. And, and yeah, it's just, and it doesn't fit their their uh, their parameters. It gets rolled out. But, and if you're going to keep on walking back what people see. You might as well walk it all the way back to misidentification. You might as well walk it all the way back to people being to every witness being being out of their mind, being every witness hallucinating. You know, if you say that every UFO, or if you say that if you throw out some of these weird UFO encounters, well, then you might as well say that everybody just saw Venus. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it gets to that point. You know, at some point you have to believe what witnesses are saying. Yeah, and and uh, it's a point I always make. If you're going to believe. Person A saw an eight-foot-tall ape in the woods, and, and you're going to throw out the the fact that Person B saw a blue light around the corner. You know, at the same time, roughly the same time, roughly the same place. You're missing part of the the puzzle somehow. And yeah. Like, you know, I, I think a lot of people say, "Well, they're just two weird things that happen." They're, you don't know that they're related. 
Yeah, but you don't know that they're not related, yeah. and you have to note them at least, you know. Yeah, I mean, I mean, okay, so let's say let's take the idea that Bigfoot is flesh and blood. Well, that means that where it lives um, in terms, you know, ecosystemically must be appropriate, right? Mm-hmm. And you have to look at, you know, if, if that's the case from a, from a physicalist standpoint, um, if there are these other strange phenomena associated with that particular era area, then at the very least, that phenomena finds this particular environment suitable, which, you know, is, is the, is the very, you know, is, is, is the very least that I think you can, you can say about it. Yeah. And, and I mean, just not to note it at all seems to me just, it's just willfully uh, ignorant. Well, and and, and let, let's admit, it's it's getting better. Like it's it is. And I think you know, kudos. You know, on the off chance that that uh, that Wes is listening, um, you know, kudos to you, man, for for opening up about this some of the stuff because the tenor of Sasquatch Chronicles has changed markedly in it, the past few years. Um, it has, and he's you know, and he'll actually cover stuff about lights in the woods. I don't. He's not going so far as to say, you know, it's related, but he's doing stuff on lights in the woods. He's doing some of these uh, weirder topics. So, yeah, absolutely, I agree. I, I would love to talk to him because every now and then you get these these little hints at the edges of some of these stories that people tell that are, if, if you know enough, if you have a broad enough Fortean foundation, mean a lot more, I think, than, you know, some of these details that people have. Like, you know, the, for example, the, the fact that people always talk about, you know, what well, sounded like a giant owl. And, oh, well, that must have been Sasquatch. Well, no, there's plenty of weirdness associated with owls that yeah. we can talk about. <laughs> like, you know, that's, that's, that's a motif in and of itself. So, I mean, they're, you know, lurking at the edge of all these stories, even the, again, even the straight, straightforward ones are these little details that if you are looking at it, if you stand at the back of the room and look at the whole painting, it's, it's, a, lot, it's a lot more, it's a lot curiouser than you'd expect. Now, there is one aspect of this particular, you know, the Bishler family case that were the, you know, the associated wild men with the area that uh, we haven't really talked about, which is the, you know, the, the fact that this initial wild man sighting was carrying a an axe, right? Yeah, yeah. It was carrying an axe and then it dropped down onto four four legs and ran with the axe somehow. Yeah. I think it's another detail that that makes it seem less and less like a flesh and blood Bigfoot. I mean, you know, maybe, I mean, maybe it's conceivable that a Sasquatch would grab a, would grab a an axe and use it or know how to use it. But that just it doesn't, that doesn't feel right, does it? No, it's 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 an odd, an odd little detail. Yeah, I, I thought you know maybe they it was just a misidentification and at first i thought well maybe they saw eye shine and they thought something was glinting off you know an axe but, they but then a... they specifically mentioned the eye shine i think like in the next yeah, paragraph yeah. and the axe again but they and and they really associated the axe with nick so it almost seemed inseparable and it to me it tied in nick being the the wild man maybe that was obvious the obvious thing i don't know but they did associate nick with the axe he was he was the one using the axe to to furiously dig you know, for these witches. Yeah, that, that's that's interesting too. Uh, you know, what the the axe detail really reminds me of is um, there are plenty of cases that you'll find where, well, not plenty, but there are more than you'd expect of cases where you will find 
you know, this big, a Bigfoot wearing a red flannel shirt <laughs> or, you know, a Bigfoot, a Bigfoot wearing some sort of, you know, some, some sort of, you know, uh, old, you know, faded jeans. Yeah. yeah. Um, I used to hate which again, when I was a kid, I, when I came across, I, I, I remember reading Bigfoot books as a kid and you come across these reports of Bigfoot in, and I hated that. And now, as you know, when I get in, now that I'm into the weirder aspects of it, I I love those reports. Those are so interesting. It, it makes me think of Bruce yeah. Banner, the Incredible Hulk, walking around with Bruce Banner. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yes. So what is that? I mean, it's it's either it's either um, it's either a were squatch, which is you know, it's, that's like that's multiplying unnecessarily if there ever was a definition, um, or or you know, or Sasquatch is taking people's clothing, which it's just it doesn't make sense for a hundred different reasons or it's something just that or, or it's you know option c whatever that is and I, right now it's option c sounds good to me and so the ditch has been dug <laughs> episode four of strange familiars thanks everybody for listening if you want to help Again, go to patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. We could definitely use the help. Share us around on social media. Thanks for listening. And we'd like to thank Joshua Cutchen for coming on the show today. He was a great addition. Yeah, that was a real pleasure. I mean, I was real nervous going into that. It was my first attempt at Skyping. Uh, Joshua made it very easy. He was very well-spoken. He was just, it was a great conversation. I had a, a really good time with that. And like I said, it was just a real pleasure. So thank you, Joshua. Strange Familiars is a production of Dark Holler Arts, LLC. Music, art, podcast, books, and more. DarkHollerArts.com Intro and background music by Stonebreath, which is our band. Go to stonebreath.bandcamp.com for more. Our newsreader for this episode was Serata.
book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. 
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.